The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Welcome back to P.I.'s Declassified. I have a great honor today to introduce you to my distinguished guest. He is a 34-year law enforcement veteran and former police chief from Seattle, Washington. Dr. Norm Stamper is the author of two books, Breaking Rank, A Top Cop's Exposé of the Dark Side of American Policing, and his most recent and hot off the press this year, To Protect and Serve, How to Fix America's Police. Welcome to the show, Dr. Stamper. Well, thank you. It's good to be with you. I'm really excited about this. And you did say I could call you Norm, so I'll call you Norm. (laughs) (laughs) That would be my preference. Okay, good. So, Norm, with all the press law enforcement has been receiving recently, I, I know the listeners of the show are just as anxious to hear your thoughts as I am. And I know a little about you. You were in San Diego for 28 years before taking on the responsibility of chief of the Seattle Police Department. What was your position when you left San Diego? I was the executive assistant chief, which means the number two person uh, responsible for all day-to-day operations of the department. And is that, that's a good-sized department there, isn't it? Uh, 2,800 at the time that I left, which is in 1994, mm-hmm. and they've grown some, but not a lot. Okay. And that is that was the city of San Diego. Yes. Uh huh. Okay. And um, then you spent some time as executive director of the Mayor's Crime Commission. There, what did that include? Well, this was during uh, Pete Wilson's reign. Uh, he went on. To, he was a member of the State Assembly, and then U.S. Congress, and was a senator, and then of course governor of the state of California. But during his time as mayor. Uh, we had experienced a, a significant spike in violent crime, uh, and he, he was looking to put together a crime commission. He called me in, which was flattering, and uh, asked if I would be the executive director of it, help him populate the commission, and develop a staff to support it, and then look exhaustively at crime in the city. Uh, it's it's history. It's uh, current situation, then current situation, and what we could do to reduce crime. Mm-hmm. And, and were you successful in reducing the statistics? Uh, you know, that's, that's a real hard question to answer. Every, everyone who uh, uh, is involved in a program and sees reductions in crime rates feels that uh, they're responsible for that reduction, whether it's politicians or police chiefs or whomever. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. In, in point of fact, we did see a reduction in crime. Uh, I'm just not the kind of person who can say that that was a direct result of this crime commission. I think mm-hmm. at the end of the uh, uh, Crime Commission's uh, a- a- activity and its research, we had a much, much better understanding of uh, everything from causes of crime to uh, potential solutions. Uh, and uh, I- I- I'm sure that we had at least some modest effect on crime rates. Well, it does take everybody working together, doesn't it? It is yeah. No one component can make a big difference by itself. Correct. So, and and then you were um, involved in the Police Executive Research Forum. What does that involve? 
Well, I was a member uh, of, of PERF, the Police Executive Research Forum, an organization, national, now international organization, of uh, police executives with college degrees. And the uh, essential idea behind it was to assemble a, a, a group of systems thinkers, people who really consider the systemic implications of the challenges of law enforcement uh, and develop suggested remedies for the problems that that we were facing. It's an organization that uh, has done an awful lot of good work periodically releasing studies on everything from use of force to body cameras to uh, stop and frisk and other controversial uh, police issues. Certainly controversy on top of the news (laughs) as we speak, for sure. So, and then... um, you are. You also participated with the National Advisory Council on Violence Against Women Act. What did that involve? That was the uh, the, the the VAWA, the Violence Against Women Act, was the first uh, national uh, uh, response to domestic violence in this country, to to violence within the home. Uh, and I was appointed by uh, Bill Clinton uh, mm-hmm. uh, during his presidency uh, to the uh, advisory council, which consisted of uh, academics and police executives and uh, those from social services uh, and generally experts in domestic violence. Uh, I guess I, I had credentialed myself by asserting that the number one crime-fighting priority of of any police department ought to be ending violence in the home. My theory being that that violence is taught behavior, it's learned behavior, and that the learning ground for uh, uh, violence as a response to differences or a response to, uh, you know, individuals trying to get what they want out of life uh, is is something that is in fact taught in the home, and that if we can prevent family violence, if we can prevent violence between people who purport to love one another, uh, that would give us some uh, uh, give us a real leg up on preventing all other forms of violence. So uh, it was chaired by the Attorney General and the Secretary of Health and Human Services, and we met. Uh, about three times a year, developed uh, a wide variety of recommendations, uh, most of which were implemented and have become law and policy throughout the country. Well, that's exciting. You must have I felt did, like it you was really exciting. Yeah, that sounds like you really that group really made a difference. I believe it has. Yes. And then. Um, I see you're a graduate of the FBI Leadership Academy. How's that training different from other leadership training? This was a a one-year training program. There were three weeks of instruction spread out over several months. You would go to Quantico, the FBI uh, training facility, for a week, come back to your agency, uh, and a few months later, uh, go back to Quantico, uh, and then finally... uh, uh, during uh, one of those three-week periods, we went to Brams Hill, which is uh, just outside London. It's the command college for the British uh, police force, the, the uh, Metropolitan Police. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was an incredibly rich learning experience. You know, we, we all had an opportunity. These are executives, police chiefs and sheriffs, had an opportunity to to learn uh, uh, much more about the foundation of American policing. Um, And uh, it was an eye-opener. That was back in 1999, uh, before 9-11, before uh, WTO on a more personal, (laughs) up close and personal level for, for yours truly. Yeah, uh, and uh, we we did uh, each of us did a field trip as well. If your particular interest was in community policing, and mine was, uh, we went to Brighton and looked at a community policing model. Others went to Scotland Yard to, to various other locations throughout Great Britain, uh, throughout 
England, I should say, and we uh-huh. uh, came back and then debriefed on that. Uh, we we heard from uh, representatives of the police who were involved in the uh, uh, in the IRA, and we uh, just just had a, a, a an incredibly uh, rich learning experience about the roots of of our institution here in the states. How exciting! It was. That's a, that's a viewpoint that nobody thinks about here, really. Um, yeah, that's that's true. Interesting. Well, you've been really busy. You earned a BA and Master's in Criminal Justice Administration, and then you got your PhD in Leadership and Human Behavior. Was either one of your books a result of your dissertation? Uh, no, actually, uh, my first book, uh, and, and I now have three that have been published, was actually my dissertation converted into a, a textbook on, on breaking down managerial uh, barriers to effective leadership. And uh, so, so my, uh, in fact, the Police Executive Research Forum, we were talking about a moment ago, uh, published that book uh, probably back in 89 or 90, 91, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, you're, now I have to ask you, because I just the titles of your books indicate that you're going to get some pushback. Have you, <laughs> have you, when you wrote the book Breaking Ranks, did you get some pushback from um, the law enforcement ranks? Yes, I did. Uh, I'm sure. I, I had a number of people, surprising number of people within law enforcement at all levels uh, ag- agree with most of everything that's in the book. Uh, it was uh, intended to be absolutely honest, uh, mm-hmm. which means uh, invariably uh, provocative. Uh, right. It was not my intent to insult uh, my former colleagues, uh, but to admit my own mistakes uh, coming up through the ranks and my time as a police officer, uh, failed policies and programs and uh, efforts that that I undertook that that didn't go well. Uh, I'm I'm not unduly immodest. <laughs> I think I was involved in successful <laughs> programs. I was more than happy to report on that as well. So the idea really was to take a look at the dark side of American yeah. policing and to find ways to shine light on it and develop solutions for the problems that uh, have really been. Uh, endemic to the institution from the very beginning. Why do you think um, it is endemic? Why do, why do you think the problems are endemic and that nothing changes, or it seems to, that nothing changes? Well, um, the, the biggest problem uh, I see is that at the very beginning, the, the, the founding moments of the institution of American policing, we made some grave errors and we haven't really corrected them. They are structural. They're systemic. Uh, let me tell you what I'm talking about. Okay. Uh, or, organized policing in this country uh, came about at the end of the slave patrols in the South and the Watchman-style policing in the North uh, and, uh, and, and was the result of the Industrial Revolution. In other words, America was moving from an agrarian to an urban, uh, from a, a peaceful rural kind of uh, uh, country to one that, that was highly industrialized. Uh, and with that industrialization and urbanization came lawlessness. And there was uh, unprecedented, unprecedented violence in the country. Well, mm-hmm. Great Britain, uh, in years prior, had experienced the same industrialization movement, and, and uh, Sir Robert Peel, the Home Secretary, uh, tried throughout the, the, the 1820s to get a, a very reluctant parliament to go along with this idea that we need to give up on this watchman-style policing uh, you know, individuals, many of them volunteers early on, you know, lighting the gas lamps at night and snuffing them in the morning and calling out if there was a problem and move right. to something organized and uniform and uh, to combat the, the incredible levels of lawlessness, uh, arson and robbery and murder and very serious crimes and a lot of it. And so... Uh, uh, 
Uh, Great Britain did not want to do that, and the reason they didn't should resonate with people in, in Western industrialized societies today. They were fearful that the police would treat their fellow citizens uh, with less respect than they deserved. They were fearful that, uh, that an organized force would become a militarized force and would treat fellow citizens as enemy combatants, as it were. Uh, and so they fought <clears throat> long and hard, Parliament did, against this idea. And then finally, uh, with safeguards built into the system, to help ensure the quality of the people who would become what would be known as bobbies after Sir Robert mm-hmm. Peel, uh, mm-hmm. they, they did, in fact, sign off on the Metropolitan Police Act of 1829. So fast forward just a few years to the middle of the century, and we now have representatives from Philadelphia and, and uh, Boston and New York studying the British model. Uh, hmm. The problem was they weren't good students. <laughs> they came back from I see. to London, for example, uh, and, and began implementing uh, these organized local police forces. But from the beginning, uh, a political spoils system, a familial spoils system, was used to uh, in hiring and promotions and transfers. Uh, it was even reported that uh, back in the 1800s that a NYPD captaincy went for fifteen thousand dollars. In other words, you would buy your promotion uh, because pretty much everyone was involved in patterns of corruption, and the higher up you were, uh, the more minions reporting to you, the more dollars that would flow into your personal treasury. So uh, that particular problem uh, was much in evidence from the very beginning. There was very little supervision. There was very little discipline. Uh, And one consequence is that uh, bigotry and brutality and corruption just flourished early in the the history of American policing, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. literally from coast to coast and border to border. There were efforts to clean it up, and uh, in, in many respects, uh, those efforts were at least partially successful. Mm-hmm. But one consequence of those efforts was that we became even more rigid, even more insulated and isolated. We figured the best way to keep, uh, keep police officers from, from uh, stealing or, or uh, shaking down uh, businesses on their beat and so forth would be to militarize policing. Uh, and so we became a paramilitary bureaucracy, top-down, uh, pretty heavy-handed in terms of internal discipline. We tended early on to treat police officers like dependent or delinquent children, and, and uh, in this effort to get tough uh, on, these, on these problems, we created a whole new set of problems. So that's, that's, a, that's a brief history of American policing. We've seen Boy, incremental that... successes, but nothing that would uh, constitute what I consider to be sweeping reform to correct those early problems. Boy, is that a mouthful. Wow. It is a mouthful. I apologize. Um, oh, no, no. I, I'm, 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 just, I'm just mesmerized here. So you're not a fan at all of, of police militarization. I am a fan of preparedness. I'm a fan of police officers being fully ready to handle rampage violence, to handle uh, terrorist activity, to handle uh, barricaded suspects who've taken hostages. Uh, I happen to have been uh, uh, at the scene in the immediate aftermath of the McDonald's massacre in 1984. I was a deputy chief at the time in charge of field operations, and I drove to the McDonald's in San Isidro right at the Mexican border, and I've never seen anything like that. Uh, One James Huberty had taken an arsenal into this iconic fast food restaurant uh, uh, on a San Diego police beat and shot up the police. He he killed 20 uh, children, women, men. Uh, wounded many others uh, before we were able ultimately to take him out with a, with one of our sharpshooters 
uh, bullets. Um, and the, it, it, the carnage was just indescribable, just unspeakable. It was a horrible thing to, to even contemplate, much less witness uh, little kids on their bicycles, one of them dead, mm. draped over his bicycle just outside the McDonald's. Mm. Another, Joshua Coleman, I'll never forget his name, playing dead, and, and thereby surviving by imitating what his 10-year-old buddy had done. Uh, what, he, he thought that his buddy was playing too. Uh, oh, wow. And, and learned ultimately that he was not, tragically. So we asked ourselves in the aftermath of, of that incident, could we have reduced the, the carnage? Uh, there are just so many guns in this country and so many uh, of them in the wrong hands. Uh, and so if somebody decides they're going to start shooting, um, mm-hmm. that's kind of hard to prevent. But can right. we uh, somehow intervene earlier and reduce the, the, the carnage at Columbine, at Sandy Hook, at, at this location or that? And the answer is always yes. Uh, so we decided at the time that if we had had an armored personnel carrier, very military in appearance, very military in terms of its utility and its purpose, and we, uh, uh, in fact, went out and, and secured one of those. And mm-hmm. our theory was, in, in God forbid, any future mass shootings, rampage violence of that nature, we'd be able to drive that vehicle right up to the door or even through the door and Mm -hmm. put an end to the carnage sooner. So there Mm -hmm. is a time and a place for military weapons, military tactics, military equipment and vehicles, uh, and uh, and certainly a military appearance. You want your police officers to be protected under those circumstances. For sure. You want them to be able to save lives. So there is a time and a place for it. The problem is that with the advent of the drug war, and certainly following 9-11, we just went crazy with uh, uh, all of this military equipment, military nomenclature. Uh, and in the process, to, do, to a degree, it, it varies from one jurisdiction to the next, of course, we wound up militarizing American law enforcement uh, at a time when I think, in general, we need to be demilitarizing it. Okay. And 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 what does that mean? Well, it, it, it starts with an attitude. It starts with a, a belief that the police in America belong to the people, not the other way around. We are a free and democratic society. Uh, we certainly need the police, un, unlike the theories of some critics these days. Uh, police are absolutely essential, but they must be seen as and experienced as partners. Uh, with local communities, with the citizenry. Mm-hmm. Uh, my definition of community policing is the community policing itself with a lot of help from their friends in blue or tan or khaki uh, and, uh, and, and establishing uh, joint decision-making, joint problem-solving, joint priority-setting, um, I personally uh, do not oppose. Many people think that I would because of my other views and values. Mm-hmm. I don't oppose police uh, citizens taking to the streets uh, mm-hmm. to police their own neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, but once again, in partnership, in coordination with, with local law enforcement agencies. Mm-hmm. When mm-hmm. I think about uh, a certain high-speed train traveling from Amsterdam to Paris uh, last year, but for three Americans on that train who took uh, uh, decisive action, everybody in that particular uh, train car would have been massacred by a terrorist. Right. But they saw what was, what was developing, and they immediately acted. They jumped him at, at no small risk to themselves, uh, and, and they disarmed this man who clearly had enough firepower to take out every human being on that train. Mm-hmm. When I think about the, the, the nine parishioners uh, in, in, uh, in South Carolina uh, who were, were uh, assassinated uh, by a young gunman, uh, and, and think about the possibility that had 
one or two or four or five of those nine citizens decided to jump uh, Mr. Root, they could have, in fact, reduced the carnage, perhaps even saved all of the lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've become accustomed, I'm afraid, as Americans to this belief that um, our safety is the responsibility of someone else. It's the responsibility of air marshals. It's the responsibility uh, of local police. And I think if we can embrace this partnership notion, I'm not talking about, you know, lone armed zealots like like George Zimmerman in the Trayvon Martin case. I'm talking about citizens who uh, just take responsibility for the health and safety of their neighborhoods. And I I think there are lots of ways that that can be done that, that protect and preserve people's civil liberties as well as their own safety. And how would you, if you were king of the, <laughs> of the city you were working in, how would you go about changing that culture? Because it, it's, a, it's a very we-against-them uh, landscape. Well, it certainly is. And, and, and once again, I, I need to clarify that my criticism is not of individual officers. It right. is of that system that creates that mentality that creates that uh, uh, we're the cops and you're not mentality. I totally uh, agree. I, my, hus- my husband is a former law enforcement. I, mm-hmm. I know what you're talking about, but it's, it's frustrating when you watch it as a citizen or you experience it as a citizen. So how does absolutely. that change? Well, it's not going to happen by Tuesday. I think we need really? to start there. Darn. It, it has been literally <laughs> generations in the making. Yeah. So you don't change a culture uh, with new policies or new selection procedures or even training. Uh, you change it by altering the very structure that produces the culture. Um, stru- structure is, is an incredibly powerful force in shaping people's attitudes, their opinions, their beliefs, and ultimately their actions. So... You know, when we have, for example, a controversial shooting, uh, in fact, let's, let's take two recent shootings that weren't really controversial at all. They were cold-blooded murder on the part of uh, individual police officers in North Charleston, South Carolina, and in Chicago. And I am, of course, talking about the Walter Scott killing and the Laquan McDonald killing. In both of those cases, police officers deliberately took the lives of, of two black men, uh, in each case a white police officer, uh, with absolutely no justification whatsoever. Now, in each of those cases, the officers have been charged with murder, I'm, I'm pleased to say. Mm-hmm. But what if, uh, if I may digress here for just one second, sure, what absolutely. if there were no video coverage of either of those cases? We would have relied on a police spokesperson saying, uh, in the case of uh, uh, Walter Scott in, in South Carolina, we had a man who seized the taser of a police officer and was about to use it on him, and the officer shot him. Mm-hmm. Because we had no footage, we had no video, we had no mm-hmm. visual of what mm-hmm. actually happened. And, of course, what we know is that what happened is uh, Mr. Scott did not seize the officer's taser. There was a a quick tussle. The taser fell to the ground, and Scott fled. He's a big man. He's not in great shape, and he's running as fast as he possibly can away from the officer who looks like he's taking target practice and just starts cranking rounds into the back of, of this fleeing suspect. He then goes back, picks up the taser after uh, Mr. Scott is lying on, on the ground, and just uh, positions the taser next to Mr. Scott. So not only did we have a cold-blooded murder, we had an effort to cover it up. In Chicago, the spokesman might have said, but for the but actually, they did say, because they didn't release this video for 13 months, mm-hmm. which I think is a terrible transgression against transparency and accountability. 
which are so necessary to building community trust. But in that case, when the when the video did finally show up, it put the it put the 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 uh, the lie to the story that was told by the Chicago Police Department. Mm-hmm. And individual officers who witnessed that killing essentially said that that uh, Laquan McDonald was fighting the officer, and the officer feared for his life, and he shot him. Well, and he had a knife. He had a small knife, but he was walking away from the officer. And when that came out, of course, uh, we had the murder charge, and now we've got some other officers who will likely be charged, certainly be fired from their jobs. So um, what's, what's happening now is external pressure caused by Americans' ability to see uh, mm-hmm. what they've only been able to read about in the past, or they've seen video footage of the scene after the fact on the news, but they have not actually seen these acts. Now, because of the ubiquitous cell phones that, that function as cameras <laughs> and because of body right. cams and dash cams, we have actual, live, in some cases, living color with sound uh, 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 views of what actually took place. So... Well, you- Pressure you know, Norm, is on the police to change that culture. Yeah. You know, you know, I'm, uh, a few months ago, I looked back at the st- statistics on officer-involved shootings, and the statistics haven't changed that much, I, even though it feels like that every week almost we have a headline of a police officer shooting an individual, usually uh, somebody who is a minority, uh, ethnic, other ethnic or- origin mm-hmm. besides Caucasian. And... And I, I was fascinated by that because it's only because of technology that we have this information in our living rooms almost every week. And what do you think? Do you think it's racism? Do you think it's fear? Uh, what happens? I don't, I don't get it. <laughs> it's racism. It's fear. It is uh, lack of training or poor training. It is, uh, in some few instances, uh, a, a faulty selection process. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's supervision, it's management, it's leadership. It's a lack of community insistence on the kind of policing that the citizens really want. And I think mm-hmm. we're in a process now of major upheaval and major change. And the question is, will we manage that change effectively so that we don't strip police officers of, of the very tools that they need to get the job done safely and effectively, uh, but, but would, in fact, uh, bring about the kinds of improvements that are needed. Now, when I say it's racism, I, I firmly believe that, that we have a certain percentage of police officers who, in their heart of hearts, are racist, who believe that as uh, as as uh, white police officers, they are superior to at least certain of the black citizens they serve. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just raw individual racism. There's no room for it. Those people should find another line of work. But the bigger problem is systemic. When in the academy we tell sea stories to try and reinforce what it's going to be like out there in the real world, and all of those stories, or most of them anyway, seem to be sourced in the black community, we're helping to create an attitude that if you're going to get hurt on the job, if you're going to fight somebody on the job, if you're going to have to pull your gun or pull its trigger on the job, the target uh, of, of, of that action is going to be a young black man. Uh, we need to be much more sensitive to recognizing that uh, black people and brown people uh, that people of all colors and ethnicities are our brothers and sisters. Not mm-hmm. to get to kumbaya here. Right. <laughs> we, we need police officers with empathy, with compassion. And they ought not to apologize for it or feel defensive about it. Uh, police officers with, with, uh, you know, with a tender heart but tough skin uh, who can take care of themselves... Uh, have the mm-hmm. overall physical strength and agility and, and uh, upper body strength that is necessary to be a cop. That's not, by the way, code for male. 
uh, we, we find many, many uh, women police officers yeah. who do a very effective job. And in fact, if you've read my book, you know, my most recent one, you know that I am an advocate for dramatically increasing the staffing uh, of, of women police officers in American law enforcement. Uh, and I explain why. But, and I'd be happy to share that with you as well. But back to this notion of, of racism and fear. Uh, too many white police officers are afraid of black men. The darker the black man, the bigger the black man, the greater the fear. The, the more likely it is that out of that fear, they'll behave impulsively. Rather so than ref- slowing things down, yeah. they speed it up. Rather it's so than soothing ref- <laughs> so thoughts, refre- they scream. I'm sorry. It's so refreshing, Norm, to hear you say that because I think we all know or many people know that to be true, but it's never admitted to. And and I and I do see that. And the the other thing that happens is that I really don't understand, and this doesn't seem to matter uh, what race the person is. So the police get called out on a um, possibly a domestic, but it really is a mentally ill person that has gone off the rails and they're freaking out and maybe they're standing there with a knife yeah. and the, maybe the family's called the police for help because they think the police is going to help them and then the person ends up getting killed and it, that seems to happen as well over and over and it, it always amazes me because often the person is uh, described as standing 10 or 15 feet away from the police officers. Maybe they do have a weapon, or maybe they do have a, a knife, but it's not a, a handgun. And you th- I would think that there's a, some training that would help law enforcement diffuse the situation instead of escalating it. Well, there certainly is. Um, I, 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 I used to believe that everything... Uh, came home to roost on 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 behavior, you know, alter the behavior of police officers, uh, and and we'll see improvements. But it's really got to start with an attitude, an attitude that my number one priority as a police officer is the protection and preservation of human life. That's my number one priority, the sanctity of human life. Uh, that doesn't mean that I will never use my gun. It doesn't mean that I may be forced to take a life to protect my own or to protect another innocent person. But what it means is I'm going to be looking for every conceivable way uh, mm-hmm. to protect human life. Uh, so let's start with that attitude. And then let's recognize that, well, here's, here's what happens often. And it happens, as you point out, time and time again. You're a mom or a dad. You have a young adult mentally ill child uh, who's off his meds and who is behaving irrationally. You've seen it before. Uh, Perhaps someone has been hurt before as a result of it, whether weapons are involved or not. Uh, But it's reached a point where you're now afraid and so you call the police to help you help your child, Mm -hmm. to help uh, reduce the potential for violence. And the police come, and five minutes later, your son is dead. Right. And that has happened, I've written about several cases in in this new book, that has happened, as I said, time and time again. So what has to happen? We need to start with that attitude. We also then need to provide very effective training in de-escalation and crisis intervention. There are specific steps and tools and tactics that social workers, uh, those particularly working with the mentally ill, have Mm -hmm. have mastered over the years. And and, uh, an entire body of knowledge has developed, a set of schools, uh, of skills rather, has been uh, set up to help individual police officers de-escalate a tense situation a potentially life-threatening situation. And it starts with slowing things down. And yet we, and it starts with a soothing, calm voice. And yet we see police officers almost instantly, some police officers, mm-hmm. on the scene of these, these calls who are screaming at, at the person. 
right, right. Uh, who seem to be totally out of control, not in control. We remember the voice of that officer uh, in the uh, uh, Minnesota case in which the young woman uh, mm-hmm. is, is recording the aftermath of the shooting of her, of her boyfriend in, in right. the car, and the officer is in tears and is screaming. Uh, that's, not, that's not the comportment. That's not what you want or need from a police officer. Now, he's reacting to the fact that he's just shot and killed a man. Uh, who is reaching for his identification. So um, yeah. it's, it's understandable even, that, that, that officers are going to face traumatic situations. We need to master our, our own emotions, master the skills and knowledge necessary to reduce, not heighten, the risk of violence. And it was pretty clear in that video, Norm, um, when the police saw before the while it was going on, that the officer was was really scared. I mean, yeah. he was very fearful. You could see it written all over in his, in his entire demeanor, his body language, and and his facial expression. So, I don't know. It's just um, <sighs> so frustrating. So, how well, many hours? The, the 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 promise here is that we now know how to help individual officers. Um, I'll use the term again, master their own fears. Fear is normal. If you don't have it, you right. need to be in another line of work altogether. Exactly. Uh, other, otherwise, you're a sitting duck uh, out there as a, as a police officer. So the so, fear is normal, and when it presents itself in our bodies, it's a gift to us. Yeah. It tells us, now is the time to, to do my own little fear management exercise it might mean taking a few deep breaths. It might mean any number of things that, that actually maximize your safety, not minimize your, your own safety. Okay. And we need to provide training that will simulate these fear-inducing situations as realistically as possible and then repeat them over and over again so mm-hmm. that it, this, these fear-reducing techniques become second nature to a professional police officer. So how many hours are required now for police training? It it varies widely. One problem we have is we have 18,000 law enforcement agencies in this country and only one constitution, which suggests a need for national standards, as far as I'm concerned, for Mm -hmm. the most sensitive aspects of police work. But those 18,000 police departments, you know, I don't know how many training academies are. There are, but there are thousands, and, and they may have very widely varying curriculum and, and instructional methods and so forth. Some academies are stress, so-called stress academies. Others are not, to their credit. Uh, but it's, it's uh, safe to say that we generally, across the country, provide firearms instruction to the tune of about 60 hours during the academy. Okay. We provide de-escalation skills at a rate of about eight hours. Per academy, oh, okay. and, and understand that that's an average, which means that some right. exceed it. To be clear, some don't teach it at all. They don't teach de-escalation. They don't teach uh, conflict resolution or crisis intervention. The very skills that are at the core of of what cops do. I did not realize that. I think that's astonishing. Well, it it is, and well, once again, I think uh, a more informed citizenry, and that includes you and me, because you know, I haven't been in the business for 16 years. I've mm-hmm. stayed, stayed abreast of it, of course, because I continue to write about it, but uh, for, 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 for those cops who are out there on the streets right now, they need an informed citizenry, ultimately, who could help them uh, as partners develop a more realistic training uh, and more of it. So how... How do you change the police academies so they accommodate what you're talking about? How does that work? I, you know, the, the, it, it's like anything else. Um, if, if there is a perceived need, something will happen. If there is not a perceived need, status quo. Nothing will change. Uh, and the fundamental question is who's perceiving that? Uh, ultimately, uh, I think we're in a democracy. We're talking about a citizen-driven approach to community mm. policing. 
a citizen-driven mm-hmm. approach uh, to helping police officers master those skills, collection, preservation, identification of evidence, protecting a crime scene, uh, field interrogation and field interview techniques, so on and so forth, the law, obviously, use of force. The entire curriculum uh, needs to be... Um, exposed to the community and the community needs to uh, get behind the kinds of changes in that curriculum necessary to make it happen. Uh, Ultimately, from an internal point of view, it's a leadership challenge. If the leaders see deficiencies in training, they have an absolute obligation uh, to correct those deficiencies and and to improve the training. Uh, And by leaders, I'm talking about uh, elected officials. I'm talking about appointed chiefs and elected sheriffs. I'm talking about academy directors and, and instructors and uh, those who are in leadership positions, to be sure. But I'd also issue a challenge to rank-and-file police officers uh, who can lead up as, mm-hmm. as well as out. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I have seen, and I'm sure you have as well, wonderful peer leaders Officers who have credibility, and when they speak, people listen. And right. when they say, hey, we're not getting the training we need out here, uh, I feel deficient in my training. I, don't, I lack confidence in handling this, that, or the other kind of police challenge. Uh, and so they exercise leadership to help bring about that kind of training. So it's not an easy answer. It, it's, uh, you know, there are multiple suspects involved right. here, and everybody needs, needs to get behind that. You know, it's, it seems to me, Norm, that, um, of course, my very layperson uh, outside viewpoint, but it seems to me that there's two types of people that go into law enforcement. There's the guys or, and gals that... Um, are altruistic, they want to help people, they see that as a, a vehicle to help people, and then there's the guys that want the power and the weapons. Yeah. Is that, they want to is that eat the, raw meat and hit people. <laughs> well, that, I guess that's pretty graphic, yeah. Um, uh, obviously, that's a metaphor. Yeah, but right. If a police officer, if a, if a police candidate is motivated by adventure, is motivated by... Uh, you know, uh, 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 walking and talking tough, uh, that's a candidate who needs to be screened out. We, we do want people who can help people, uh, but, but who can also tie their shoes and handle themselves physically. Wow. So it's, it's, it's really, really important that our screening uh, 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 methods be really strong, really defensible. I think we've made pretty good progress there over the over the decades so for me the the larger issue isn't uh about the screening process it is about what happens to candidates once they become cops and uh speaking from personal experience i was sucked into that culture like nobody's business and i was five minutes later i'm saying and doing things i never said or done in my life and and things that i ought not to have been doing so uh, I, yeah. I set about to, to abuse the very people I'd been hired to protect and serve. And that was learned behavior. Uh, I, I was around good cops, to be sure, but I was also around enough of them who treated the job like an adventure and, mm-hmm. and who uh, just couldn't wait, you know, to bait somebody into taking a swing at them so they could choke them out. Uh, I was that kind of cop for the first 14 months or so on the job. And uh, And fortunately, I crossed paths with a principal prosecutor who asked me if the Constitution of the United States meant anything to me. Really? And uh, that was a turning point, needless to say. That's fascinating. Well, Well, you know, it's, 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 I'm 21 years old. I didn't have the best family life. I'm now part of a family that has welcomed me, that's mm. funny and charismatic and tells really, really juicy stories mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and by God does in, uh, get involved in really exciting, adrenaline-pumping kinds of situations. Right. And for me, it was all just this, this wonderful adventure. Uh, and, and when that prosecutor called me on my stuff... Uh, he he really did trigger uh, a major change in me that took me back to some of my pre-cop 
views and values, which, and I'll always be grateful to him for that. Well, I can certainly see that happen. And, and you know, there's so many things, little things like uh, um, your partner does something that maybe isn't quite above board and you look the other way and then something else happens and he looks the other way and then you create a whole culture of, uh, you know, covering for each other. Yeah. And that leads into all these other things that we're talking about. That's, that's exactly why. What was it? Five or six cops watched uh, 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 Jason Van Dyke shoot and kill Laquan McDonald in Chicago. All of mm-hmm. them lied. Every single mm-hmm. one of them uh, told the story that they agreed upon. Uh, they engaged in criminal behavior in doing that, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so careers are lost. Uh, a, a life is lost. The yeah. police officer who did the shooting obviously will never be a cop again and hopefully will be in jail for the rest of his life. But um, it doesn't have to be that way. We can, we can create uh, you know, a positive, healthy culture and environment in which police officers derive great personal satisfaction from doing the work they do, showing some empathy, showing some compassion, uh, being able to laugh at themselves. My yeah. God, that's so important, I think, in yeah. any job to be able to, to say, well, I really screwed that up, uh, and, and to learn from it and, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and go on. So, it's, you know, we, we can create a healthier culture that doesn't strip uh, policing of its humanity. In fact, if we did that, we'd, we'd have a bunch of robots. You are right. And uh, Norm, we have used up an hour. I didn't even take a break because we had so much to talk about. But uh, for you folks, this Norm's book has a lot of meat in it. It has a lot of good ideas to protect and serve how to fix America's police. You've got to get this book. It's really good. And if you want to read Breaking Ranks, that's a good idea, too. Anyway, Amazon.com, I think it's probably the place to go. Norm, it's such a pleasure to have you join the show. You're thoughtful insight is so refreshing thank you so much my pleasure thank you and folks if uh, you're interested in advertising call my uh, wonderful executive producer Sonda Rogers at voiceamerica.com join me again next week when we declassify more real stories from real investigators and uh, Dr. Norm Stamper is a real investigator every Thursday morning uh, it's PIs Declassified I'm Francie Kaler thanks for listening You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 